This is They Create Worlds, episode 33, the saga of Sega. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. We would like to wish you a good post happy holidays because this is coming out new year's day that's right and we hope that you didn't have quite the same terror of ice and horribleness that we had during ours lots of ice lots of horror well really very little ice but lots of horror yay horror meanwhile minnesota's laughing at us but that that's okay that's okay Probably the Canadians too. Well, yes, but they—they're they, the Canadians are probably too, too frozen to laugh. I don't know. Well, we just lost all our Canadian listeners. Good job, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, uh, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and let's hope we all have a great 2017. All righty. But today, well, this episode, we will be delving into the mysteries of the saga. Of Sega again. That's right. The last time that we touched on Sega, way, way, way back in practically the very beginning of the podcast, when when audio was sometimes less reliable, we're better now. Uh, we talked about Sega in its very early days, kind of how the service games complex and Rosen Enterprises came together to form this company, Sega Enterprises. And then at that point, we kind of skipped ahead and talked a little bit about the Sega-Nintendo rivalry in the 90s and stuff like that. But there's actually so much more convoluted corporate history of Sega that happened in the 60s, 70s, and 80s that we didn't talk about at all, and which, like the early history of Sega, is also very poorly understood and is often incorrectly reported in sources. Which will make a very interesting bit, but first... I know you, Alex, you said you had something about Namco you wanted to bring updates on because we just did the Namco episode a few episodes ago and you came across some new information on that. Exactly. This is our very first They Create Worlds update. It feels like we should have some kind of fancy logo and music for that. I don't know. I might be able to do music. <laughs> oh, God. Insert fancy music here. <laughs> So just uh, to talk about this briefly, when we talked about Namco, we talked about the foundation of the company and my suspicions that the manufacturing part of it may have been involved in guns somehow, air guns or toy guns or something. Since then, Ethan Johnson, who we've mentioned before on this show and who has uh, been doing a lot of very interesting research, uh, a lot of interviewing and a lot of scanning of documents that he gets uh, through this university library, found a Japanese book that talked about some of the history of the video game industry and was able to do some very rough translation, you know, Google Translate type stuff. So not perfect translation, but very rough translation to get a sense of what certain parts of the book said. There is a brief little bit about Namco in there with, uh, with quotes by the founder, Masaya Nakamura. That doesn't give much more information, 
but it does indicate that when the company was founded, it was manufacturing rocking horses. So the, the traditional American narrative of the company is that Nakamura Manufacturing started by operating a couple of horse rides on the roof of a department store. And that's the part that never made sense to me, because if it was just operating rides, why would it be called Nakamura Manufacturing? And there was no indication that they were manufacturing horse rides at that time in any of the English sources I've seen. So it looks like they were. It is also true, however, that they did, he did at some point, the first horse rides he operated were two that he bought. And we know that because there are direct quotes from him in a couple of sources, Kent's book, Ultimate History of Video Games, plus a Sunday Times article in Britain. And these are both direct quotes. So it's from, straight from Nakamura's mouth, that the first two rides he bought, well, the, the first two rides he had were purchased. So now what I do think happened, because it is true that there was a gun repair business, air guns. It is true that once gun laws looked to become more restrictive, that the Nakamuras started modifying air guns into children's pop guns. That happened. And it's also true that he bought horses, and it's also true that he manufactured horses. So I think what happened, if you connect the dots here, is that they got into the toy business because they started doing these children's pop guns. And Nakamura himself has said it was doing the guns that thought got him thinking about other forms of amusement. So the guns probably led him to purchase a couple of horses just as another form of children's amusement because he saw an opportunity there. And then when those horses did okay for him is probably then when he founded Nakamura Manufacturing to create his own horse rides. That's, that's what I'm assuming happened now. And hopefully you'll learn more as uh, those things get more translated into proper English. Yeah, you never know. But that is our, that is our official Namco update for this episode. Ending fanfare here. <laughs> so with that, I think it's uh, safe to say we can move along now to Sega Enterprises. All right. Sega Enterprises. We've gone over a lot of stuff about Sega and how they came about, mm -hmm. where they went to, and especially the Nintendo-Sega rivalry. Mm -hmm. Where do we want to start off with here, sort of the teenage years, I guess? Well, really, it's, it's the formative years of Sega Enterprises. We basically brought the company up to its formation from these different companies that merged. Mm -hmm. So we'll, we'll start right there in 1965 with this brand new company, Sega Enterprises Limited, that is being run by David Rosen, who had been the head of and founder of Rosen Enterprises, one of the two companies that formed. And we had briefly mentioned that while Service Games was really in the jukebox and slot business, David Rosen was far more interested in being involved in the coin-operated amusement business. And so he very quickly transformed Sega Enterprises into a coin-op company. They kept the jukeboxes because that's not in any way incompatible with being a, a coin-operated amusement company. But they really phased out the slot machine stuff and they phased out the military-based stuff. Rosen really wanted to take the company public. That was kind of his end goal, was to turn this Sega Enterprises Limited into a publicly traded company. They started the process. They got an underwriter and they started the process of that you go through before you do an IPO. In the end, they decided they just couldn't do it. 
it would be way too difficult. The reason for that is, remember again, that this is a company that is run by Americans. It's practically an American company. There's even some interviews with a couple of the Japanese staff that joined the company in the 1960s uh, that were there for all the way, you know, for like, geez, 40 years, I think, almost. Wow. Where even they said that, like, the internal office correspondence in the 60s and whatnot was in English. It wasn't in Japanese. I mean, this was essentially an American company in Japan. Since World War II, there had not been an IPO for an American company in Japan at that point. They would have been the very first American company to go public in Japan after World War II with all the baggage that entails. Yeah, a lot of baggage, stigma. Right. Plus, there had never been a publicly traded Japanese coin-op company. Heck, at that point, there wasn't even a publicly traded American coin-op company. The first publicly traded, or amusement company specifically, the first publicly traded amusement company in the United States was Bally, and Bally didn't go public until 1969. So this is a couple of years before that. It was just going to be way too difficult. They couldn't do it. So if they were going to expand, if they were going to become bigger, which was Rosen's goal, Mm -hmm. they were going to need an international partner. They were going to need somebody in the United States that could buy them and put funding into them and then maybe even take them public in America at some point as a subsidiary. They ended up selling the company instead of going public, and they sold the company to Gulf and Western. Gulf and Western, a big part of the business was an oil business, but it it wasn't that anymore. It was a huge conglomerate. It was kind of, this was the era of conglomerate building. I don't know all the economic details, but basically the SEC rules and the stock market rules and everything at that time were very favorable towards conglomeration. A conglomerate being a company that has a bunch of different businesses, but the businesses don't. They don't have any relation to each other. Exactly. I can have Joe's Laundry and... Bob's Auto Part, and Charlie's Fishmonger Incorporated. Right, exactly. And this was a period of great conglomerizing. I mean, we already talked about Warner Communications, of course, in just the last episode with Atari, which was another conglomerate. Mm -hmm. Started with parking services and cleaning services. And (laughs) And turned into whatever else. Right. It's crazy. So Charles Bloodhorn was the, uh, the CEO of this company, of Gulf and Western, and he was really into conglomerizing. He was building this big thing. And the biggest thing, of course, was Paramount Pictures was the really big thing they have. And in fact, Gulf and Western eventually changed its name to Paramount. So Hmm. the Paramount that we have today, which I think is now owned by somebody else, but (laughs) the Paramount that we have today was actually Gulf and Western, which had bought Paramount Pictures as one of its many properties and then decided after it started breaking up the conglomerate that that was the most valuable part. And so it Parent company became Paramount. Huh. So for a brief period of time, Sega and Paramount were part of the same company. They absolutely were. And uh, we'll get to this a little later in the story, but there was actually a lot of plan planning to do some great synergy between those two companies since they were both in the entertainment business. If you have movies, you want to make games to go with those movies and have tie-ins. Exactly. So Gulf and Western purchases Sega in 1969, kind of over 1969 and 1970. They buy the stock gradually. They start buying the stock in 1969. They complete their purchases of the stock in early 1970. And they buy all of Sega except for 20%. They buy 80% of Sega. Ray LaMare, who was one of the founders of Service Games, we mentioned him briefly in that episode way, way back in the day, 
for whatever reason, and I don't know the story there, he kept his stake. He owned a fifth of the company, mm-hmm. and he didn't sell to Gulf and Western. Gulf and Western owned 80%. They bought all the rest of the stock from the founders. Ray Lamar owned 20%, and it was now a subsidiary of Gulf and Western. At this point, the service games management side of things take their buyouts and leave. Well, Ray Lemaire, I assume, stayed because he kept his stake. But Marty Bromley, who you may recall was the guy that was kind of in charge of this whole web of companies Mm -hmm. with his father, Irving Bromberg. So Marty Bromley was the big guy. He took his Sega money and left. And so did Dick Stewart, who was the other co-founder of Service Games Japan with Ray LaMare. They stayed in business together. And what Marty Bromley did is he basically, club specialty overseas continued. Club Mm -hmm. specialty, you may recall, was the Panamanian corporation at the heart of everything. So product would come from Sega in Japan and from American distributors or whatever. It would all go to Club Specialty Overseas, and then Club Specialty Overseas would distribute that equipment around the world, mostly to American military bases. So Club Specialty stayed as, as an independent company. That had nothing to do with, with Sega Enterprises because they were just buying Sega Enterprises, Gulf and Western. And Marty Bromley retained control of that. Club Specialty actually remained Sega's exclusive worldwide distributor for another uh, two or three or four years. I forget exactly when it ended, but 71, 72, somewhere in there. Remained the worldwide agent for Sega products. He also, Marty Bromley, took the factory that Sega had just established in Spain. Because you may recall again that this global operation had distributors in Europe too, in Britain and Germany. So they had actually established a factory in Spain as well to better serve the European market. They established that not too long before Sega was purchased by Gulf and Western. Marty Bromley took the Sega factory and kept operating that. And you see, the Sega in Spain was called Sega SA. And we talked about that. You know, I don't know what that abbreviation means, but it's essentially the same thing as incorporated. We talked about that in the context of Atari SA mm-hmm. in the Atari episode. We did. So it was Sega SA because it was their European subsidiary, but then that got kind of blended together. And so the company came to be referred to as Segasa. Segasa. Because they just, they basically, they took that SA and they Tacked stuck it. it. To Sega. Right. So Segasa, I don't know the full history of Segasa, but Segasa continued to operate and manufacture stuff for many, many years, uh, you know, a decade or a couple of decades after the split happened. And so that Segasa, even though it has Sega in the name, is actually a different company. They made some of their own products. They also did a lot of contract manufacturing for the big coin-op companies in the United States, because this is a bit of a tangent, but a lot of the European market, before the American companies did finally start opening their own plants in Europe, and the Japanese companies started opening their own plants in Europe, a lot of the European market was served by companies that would buy the boards or buy the rights to the games, one or the other, from the American companies and then manufacture them locally because that makes a lot more sense than shipping them. (laughs) Yeah, especially on things of that scale. So that's what Bromley got involved in. He owned Segasa and he did that. He had another factory that he was a partner in called Alka in the United Kingdom uh, that also manufactured stuff. And he remained a major operator. He uh, operated a lot of arcades and whatnot in England. So that's what Marty Bromley did, and he remained involved in that European scene pretty much right up until he died, which was just uh, just a few years ago, three or four or five years ago. He lived into his 90s. I mean, he lived 
very long time. And he worked still to his 90s, or did yeah, he retire at No, some no, point? I mean, I, he still had his interest in the companies. I mean, I'm sure he wasn't, I imagine he wasn't, like, showing up to the office every day. Mm-hmm. But he still had his interests in, in a lot of those companies. So that's kind of when Bromley and Stewart and all of them kind of ride off into the sunset. At this point, Sega is very much David Rosen's company. It has more of the Rosen Enterprises DNA in it than it has the Service Games DNA in it. According to David Rosen, I haven't talked to him, but he has given interviews. Golf and Western had really hoped to use Sega as one of the very first companies in a massive acquisition spree in the Orient. They kind of wanted to conglomerize in the Orient in the same way that they had conglomerized in the United States. And Sega was kind of at the heart of these plans. So for the first few years, there was, there was a real focus on the Japanese part of the company. I mean, it was, it was a Japanese company. There were no other tendrils anymore. But there was a focus on it as an Asian company because that's kind of where they wanted to operate. That didn't end up working out. I don't know the details of that. But Gulf and Western didn't end up doing that. What happens in the end is Sega becomes, in the 70s, an American company. And this is something that, this is a very confusing thing that people don't realize. You see this error a lot. Even the book that we briefly mentioned at the end of the last episode, uh, Ken Horowitz's new book on Sega of America, which is a fantastic book. Can't recommend it enough. Its focus is on the later period, so it only briefly covers this history. But even if this is the, I'm, I'm only picking on him because it's the most recent book released. not. <laughs> Not because right. this is an egregious error or I think it's, right. it's a problem. It's, he happens to be the most recent person. Even he kind of gets this, this period wrong. Even today, the, the researchers aren't still getting this right. So what happens is they decide to take Sega public in the United States. Mm-hmm. But Sega is a Japanese company. You can't, I mean, yes, a foreign company can list on, on a stock exchange, but it's, it's much trickier mm-hmm. to do it that way. So the easiest way to do it is to have an American company that is already publicly traded and make Sega a subsidiary of that company. Because then you don't have to go through any IPO. You don't have to go through any process. It's just, it's always been a public company. It's just a new name, a, a new company, a new focus, but an right. already existing company on on, I think, the American Stock Exchange. It wasn't on the New York Stock Exchange. One of the many companies that Gulf and Western had, they had a ton of them, was a company called the Polly Bergen Company. Polly Bergen was an actress, so it was her cosmetics brand. It was a cosmetics company. Mm -hmm. But it hadn't been doing well. They weren't really interested in the company anymore. So what they do is in 1974, they change the name of the Polly Bergen Company to Sega Enterprises Incorporated. Okay. Again, just like with Atari, we have to keep the company straight based on the little three-letter abbreviation after the main name. Right. So we have Sega Enterprises Limited. Mm-hmm. That's the Japanese company. Now we have Sega Enterprises Incorporated. The American company. The American company. Gulf and Western, I think, didn't, they didn't fully own Polly Bergen. They, they had a stake in it, but they didn't fully own it. So they purchased the rest of the Polly Bergen stock, so they had control of the company changed the name to Sega Enterprises Incorporated, and then made Sega Enterprises Limited a subsidiary of Sega Enterprises Incorporated. Okay, that makes sense. So Sega is now actually technically an American company, even though 
everything is still in Japan. Okay, so where does the confusion come in with the book and... Well, you see, people assume that Sega Enterprises Limited, being a Japanese company, people assume that when they came to America, that the American stuff was subsidiaries of the Japanese company. Ah, but it's the opposite way. Exactly. And it's, I assume, fully because that's how they could take the company public in the United States with a minimum of fuss. Most people assume that Sega Enterprises Limited was a Japanese company with an American subsidiary, which is the way it was in the late 80s and the early 90s and up through today. I mean, they have an American subsidiary. Mm -hmm. But it was actually an American company with a Japanese subsidiary. And how it started until things changed later on. Right. Sega Enterprises Incorporated is now the entity. And David Rosen, at some point in here, I'm not sure if it was right in 74 or a little later, he does move to Southern California, to Los Angeles, to run the company from the United States. I mean, it is an American company. The management is now in America. The Japanese company is run by executive vice presidents mm -hmm. of the parent company. They, they're not their, their own thing. So it's now become an American company with a Japanese subsidiary. And that persists throughout Gulf and Western's ownership. We'll wrap up Gulf and Western's ownership later in the episode. But this situation persists for a decade, 1974 to 1984. So it for is, a significant amount of time, you had this be an American company with a Japanese subsidiary. That's correct. It's only until after Gulf and Western that we get a Japanese company with an American subsidiary. Right, which we'll get to later, later in the episode. Now that we've got that corporate part of things straightened out, I want to take a step back and talk about product a little bit. Sega was an operator of arcades in Japan. We've discussed this. Rosen Enterprises had arcades all over the country. Service games had jukeboxes all over the country. I don't think they ran arcades, but of course, once they merged, they had the Rosen arcades. So they're operators and distributors because there really is not a lot of distinction in Japan between distributors and operators, as we've talked about before. Rosen wants them to also be manufacturers. He wants to have all steps on that coin-op chain, manufacturer, distributor, and operator, all focused within his own company. Initially, what he plans to do is kind of mid-range, cheaper novelty games. Because this was a period of time, we may have touched on this briefly, but this was a time when the American industry was very stagnant. Mm -hmm. Basically, in the 1950s, the price to play a game to, had risen from a nickel to a dime, and it hadn't really risen since. By the 60s, just because of inflation and increasing R&D costs and all the other economic factors, you couldn't really economically make games that were set to dime play anymore. You just wouldn't recoup enough dimes versus the, the purchase cost. Well, think of it sort of like with us when you and I were kids. Quarters were the standard for arcades mm -hmm. forever. Yes. And then it was only until we were in college that they started going 50 cents, dollar play, 75 cents. Right. I think it was because of the just like that, inflationary pressures, but mm -hmm. you still had this coin that was so great. It mm -hmm. had this appeal of one quarter, one play, and that had a lot of social inertia to it. Right. I and mean, this is a tangent. We won't get into it, but I mean, the coin-op industry tried for years to get the government to get a standardized, widely accepted dollar coin into circulation mm -hmm. for exactly that reason, 
because after the quarter, there were technically half dollar and dollar coins at various times, but not not in wide circulation. And they they tried so hard, lobbied so hard to try to get that dollar coin for that exact reason. Of course, eventually, finally, plastic cards, you know, prepaid card kind of things finally created a, a situation where you could just buy the card at the at the desk at Dave and Buster's or whatever and then swipe Charge it through. It up. Yeah. Yeah. And and that finally allowed them to kind of get ahead of the price a little bit. But yeah, exactly. That's that's the kind of thing. There's just there's a lot of inertia. Obviously, quarters were were pretty common in terms of a currency. You didn't have the same problem with dime versus quarters you have with quarter versus fifty cents a dollar. Mm-hmm. But still, when the public has come to expect a certain price for a particular service, they're not going to be happy if you suddenly try to raise that price because it's not like the games had changed that much. Pinball in the 1960s, there were some more sophisticated things going on. They had added new kinds of targets. They'd added multiball. It was a little different, but it was still basically the same game as pinball in the 1950s. To have a pinball table that looks very similar to the pinball table you were playing five years ago seems to be the same technology, essentially. I'm simplifying a little bit, but for our argument, seems to be the same technology, essentially. And oh, by the way, I want you to pay 25 cents for the privilege now. Mm-hmm. Public's like, no. <laughs> yeah. I felt the same way about paying 50 cents for something that I used to pay 25 cents for. Right, exactly. They didn't really have a way to to raise the price effectively. And as a result, they were having to cut back on R&D costs, and they were having to release fewer products and only release products that they knew were going to be highly successful. Because if you put out too many machines that couldn't recoup their costs, then the operators are going to stop buying from the distributors, the distributors will stop buying from the manufacturers, and then the whole thing goes belly up. There was an opening, David Rosen thought, to get some lower-cost mid-range novelty games into the U.S. market because the American manufacturers had basically just stopped making that kind of game for the most part. They joined the Music Operators of America, which was the trade organization of the operators and distributors in the United States for coin-operated amusements. That just shows, as a side note, how important the jukebox was relative to everything else. It was called the Music Operators of America, even though it included coin-op. Mm-hmm. In the mid-70s, once video and solid-state pinball became big, they changed their name to the AMOA, the Amusement Machine Operators of America. So you can see where that shift kind of happened. Definitely. <laughs> Just through the name of the organization. They joined the MOA. They got a deal with Williams, the pinball giant, to bring their line to the States. And that's what they were going to do. And then that changed because of Periscope. We discussed Periscope in the Namco episode. We discussed how both Sega and Namco have taken credit for that game. Mm -hmm. For the purpose of this episode, it doesn't matter. The important thing is whether Sega or Namco originated it in Japan, Sega is the company that brought it to the United States and to Europe. And they slimmed it down. The original, you may recall, was this three-periscope monstrosity. For export, they scaled it down to a one-periscope model, so one person, one cabinet, a traditional Mm -hmm. kind of shooting game model. This game was also going to be very expensive because it was a very complicated game, far more complex than typical game. And plus, there was going to be the import costs on top of it. 
they started charging a quarter mm. because they felt they could get away with that because the technology was so much different and so much more impressive. If you have something that's really unique and different, you can justify the price. Exactly. Sort of like how you would see the really big fancy games, even when we were kids, some of those might have been $0.75 cents a dollar right. quarter. Or Laserdisc games in the golden age. Oh, Laserdisc yeah. games were $0.50, cents, mm-hmm. while the, the regular games were $0.25. Cents. Right. So there is some precedent for this. Exactly. It was not the first quarter play arcade machine. The quiz games, which we'll talk about at some point, we'll talk about nutting at some point, because that's a horribly uh, misunderstood company. The quiz games that came out, Solid State Quiz Machines, came out in 1967. Those were set to quarter play. Those were the very first. But then you got these audiovisual games, as the trade press called them. They called them audiovisual or realistic games because they felt more immersive. They had more advanced effects. They started charging 25 cents as well, starting with Periscope. And so that led to this whole kind of rejuvenation of the novelty business. Video is often treated as something that just kind of came in and took over the market and just happened. Yeah, just destroyed the the rest of the competition and took the arcade world by storm. It was really part of a continuum. There were a lot of advanced technology, starting in 1967 with quiz games. You got a lot of interesting technology coming into the arcade all at the same time. And so the video game was kind of part of this, this continuum of technology. It wasn't a continuum in the sense that the same technology that was in the video game was also in the audiovisual games, but just in the sense that the arcade was being open to new advanced ideas for the first time in really quite a long time. And I think that's something to get lost. So Sega played a key role in that. And Sega started having a bigger U.S. presence then. They didn't have an office in the U.S., but they were importing product. But they got buried essentially by clone manufacturers. Gotta love those cloners. Uh, I'm not sure the Periscope itself was really cloned, but they had some other advanced games that came out after that, audiovisual games, and those started getting cloned like crazy by the few remaining American manufacturers. So in 1970, they gave up on the American market. They just completely focused on Japan and didn't want to do anything in the U.S. anymore. Does that mean that Sega Incorporated pretty much shut down at this point? Well, no, 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 because this is before Sega Enterprise Incorporated even existed. Okay. There's a difference between having a headquarters in the United States and actually doing product in the United States. Ah. Sega was really still a Japanese-oriented company. It's just they happened to be publicly traded in America, and they happened to have a corporate master that was an Mm. American company. Okay. What changed that, what got them back into America again, was the video game. Because they started importing Pong very soon after Pong was released. Both Sega and Taito did, bringing it into Japan. And occasionally having their techs make very slight modifications. But Sega had a staff that was oriented towards electromechanical games. They did not have the expertise to create their own video games, really. They could import them. They could do exact copies of them just by looking at the board and copying the board, but they couldn't really make their own games. In 1975, the year after the formation of Sega Enterprises Incorporated, they establish Sega of America. And this is the American subsidiary of 
the company, the operating subsidiary of the company. You know, Sega Enterprises Incorporated is is the holding company. It's the parent. It's got management, but it doesn't doesn't really do anything other than be it's in purely charge. administrative. Right. Then they have the Japanese company, Sega Enterprises Limited. Limited. And now they've decided they need a real corporate entity in the United States as well. So in 1975, they established the first company that goes by the name Sega of America. Okay. In Redondo Beach, California. And this company has a couple of things going on. They hire computer experts, solid state technology experts that can work with their game designers back in Japan and co-develop video game products because they don't have that expertise. They also get into the projection TV business, of all things. Really? Yeah, I don't know exactly what the story is there. I just know that, that they did. They, they might have seen a way that that technology could have been useful in the arcade, would be my guess, is that they, uh, they bought a company that was already doing widescreen projection televisions and continued to operate that, probably because they saw synergy with their arcade business. But whatever that was, it didn't pan out. So that's another strange sideline that, that Sega was in briefly. They did some distribution. They distrib- uh, we mentioned in our previous Sega episode that they distributed one of Nintendo's very early games, mm-hmm. Wild Gunman. Not the Wild Gunman that's on the NES. This was actually a, a projection game using video where there was actually film footage of real cowboys and you tried to outdraw them. They reused the name and the basic concept for the Wild Gunman game that later came to the arcades as a video game and then came to the NES. I think you have Wild Gunman, don't you? I should, or hopefully it's not one of the lost cartridges. (laughs) Right. This is a different Wild Gunman, but the same kind of basic idea. This is how they started getting really involved in America again in 1975. Mm -hmm. And they do a small number of games. I don't think they do terribly great or anything, but they they start putting out a few games. They really need a better American operation. This this Sega of America thing is not really working out for them. So they start looking for companies that they can acquire. The first company they tried to acquire, and I think they might have tried this even before Sega of America was established. I forget exactly where the timeline is, but they tried to acquire Williams. Really? Well... The Williams parent, Seberg, is going through all sorts of difficulty. Williams itself is fine during this period, but it's part of a whole bunch of corporate shenanigans that we will discuss in some podcast someday. <laughs> so uh, the parent corporation of Williams has a great incentive to sell, to raise money, essentially. But that deal doesn't go through for whatever reason. So they focus instead and settle on a small company called Gremlin Industries. Gremlin was founded by a gentleman named Frank Fogelman and a gentleman named Carl Grindel. Frank Fogelman, I won't get into to his full history here, but he had been involved in a lot of engineering ventures for a very long time at this point. And they founded Gremlin. It's interesting. It was actually supposed to be Grindelman hmm. Industries because it's Carl Grindel. Right. Frank Fogelman, Grindelman Industries. They're on the phone with the Secretary of State's office, California's California company, to register the name, to incorporate. Right. The guy on the other end of the line mishears them. He thinks they said Gremlin. Oh, dear. 
So that's how that's how they became Gremlin Industries is because somebody couldn't hear on the phone. Oh dear. You would think they would verify that back and forth, like, or at least have it on paper and go, okay, here's the paper saying well, the spelling I'm, and all this. You know, I, you know, obviously with these kind of stories, they're always a little cuter in the retelling than they are in real life. I'm assuming they would have had a chance to correct that. They probably decided that Gremlin sounded perfectly fine to them after it happened. Right. It's, it's not that nobody could have caught the error, probably. But, it, but they, weren't, they weren't planning to name the company gremlin right it happened accidentally that that's the important part of the story it is (laughs) gremlin got involved in games by accident completely by accident that's not what they were doing in uh i think 73 or so a guy came in to their shop that was operating uh something called a wall game a wall game a wall game is another type of coin operated amusement it's not a video game it's called a wall game because it hangs on the wall. It was popular very briefly in bars. You would like have pachinko? No, no, it's, it's not like that at all. You have a lighted back glass. Or I mean by the hanging on the wall. Well, part. okay, sure. You have a lighted back glass mm-hmm. with a bunch of different light bulbs in it. And you have a couple of remote control units with a button or two. I mean, these are very simple. These are not complex units. Basically... The backlash will go through the lights uh, in a series that makes it look like something's moving on the screen, and then you have to hit the button at the right time to cause something good to happen. So, like, one of the very popular concepts was darts. So there would be a, a bullseye on the backlash, and there would be a hand in, drawn in multiple positions in an arc on the backlash. Hmm. And then the light would cycle through all those hand motions like someone is throwing a dart at the dartboard. And what you had to do is time your button press exactly correctly to the right point in that sequence, because it's going very rapidly, Mm -hmm. in order to hit your bullseye. Another concept was baseball, kind of the same idea. You have a pitcher that's throwing a ball, and and you're controlling the batter, and you have to press your button at the exact right moment in the ball's motion so that, that you hit the ball. But there's no actual motion on the screen. What it is is there's just a series of images, and then the light highlights those images in rapid succession. Very simple electronic thing. They were really big for a couple of years. In 1972, they were actually the biggest coin-operated game concept. They were the most. Uh, they brought in more coin drop than any other concept. Sort of like that redemption game where. It's sort of a mm-hmm. platform on the ground and it's a about. big circle and mm-hmm. you have this light going around Yep, and you have these sort of like gates and you're trying to catch the light in the gate. Exactly. It's, it's a very similar idea. And that's, that's something that people today could probably relate to as mm-hmm. the same general concept. And so it was a bar game. It wasn't an arcade game. You'd hang that on the wall in your bar and, you know, it was some, a very simple game that, you know... Gets more challenging if you're a little drunk, so it's kind of one of those fun things. You had a few beers, and then far far safer to press the button to uh, to hit the bullseye on the lighted back glass when you're a little drunk than have actual darts mm-hmm. while everyone's a little drunk. So those those got really big in the early 70s. My timing's still good. I can bet you 20 bucks I can go get the timing good. Bing. Here's your 20 bucks. That's right, pretty much. So they were very popular kind of between 70 and 72. They fell off a little bit after that, but Gremlin got into it in 73 because this guy that was operating one of these games brought it in to be repaired. They had a 
at their little engineering firm, Gremlin in- Industries. And the VP of engineering, a guy named Jerry Hansen, was very surprised when he opened this thing up and saw that it was very primitive circuitry. And he was like, really? Something this simple brings in money? <laughs> and the guy was like, oh, yeah, make a lot of money on this thing. So they decided to get into the wall game business just because they felt they could, just as a little sideline. It's like if something this simple and this cheap really brings in money, why not? Yeah, makes sense. So they did the whole wall game thing. But this is the period of time when the wall games are declining. So eventually the wall game really isn't a, a good thing to stay in. They have a couple of hits. They, they do a baseball game that does very well. Uh, you know, they have some success. In 1976, they hire additional programmers and engineers to enter the video game industry because the video arcade stuff is doing pretty well. They have a, a, a hit in 76 with a game called Blockade. It's essentially the origin of the modern snake game that you hmm. see on phones and whatnot. It doesn't have the whole you eat something and your snake gets larger part of it. It's a little different. But basically, you have a cursor on the screen, and as that cursor moves around the screen, it leaves lines, and it's two-player, and basically, you keep drawing your, your lines until one or the other of you crashes into the lines you've drawn on the screen. I mean, it's, it's the beginning of the snake game. Uh, Lance Houck, who created it, he was interested in the idea of the—I forget what it's called, but it's basically, you know, if you have a drunk person walking around a lamppost or whatever— Eventually, he runs into the lamppost, you know, mm-hmm. because he there's a theorem or uh, or something. But uh, the point is that that kind of got him interested in the idea of a, of a cursor moving around the screen and the cursor eventually running into itself, so to speak. And so he created this game, Blockade. And Blockade ended up being a big hit, though it was heavily cloned and pirated. Gremlin may not have actually had much financial success with it because... They took a lot of orders at the MOA show in 76, the AMOA at that point. And then a lot of those orders were canceled when people could get it from clone makers that between the show and the beginning of the year started knocking it off like crazy. But the concept was very big. They had something good with that. And they continued making video games over the next couple of years. They felt like they'd hit a wall, though. Frank Fogelman felt like he had hit a wall. He wanted to expand the company even more, but he didn't really see an outlet for that. He was amenable to selling to Sega as a way of expanding his own company. And Sega was amenable to buying because they felt they needed a larger U.S. presence. Makes sense. In 1978, Sega buys Gremlin and kind of incorporates that into their whole American thing. And Gremlin becomes essentially their primary American subsidiary at that point for the arcades. This replaces Sega yeah, of America. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure what happens to the Sega of America. I don't know if it was replaced at that point or not. But, yeah, I mean, in, for all intents and purposes. For it, practical it purposes. Because they have the, the big factory now in, in the U.S. and they have the U.S. staff. They essentially run, in large part, as, as largely autonomous companies. They release games in the United States under the Sega Gremlin logo. I mean, that's what they call it, Sega slash Gremlin. That's, that's what they call it. The American staff make their games, and the Japanese staff make their games in Japan, and very rarely do the two ever meet. There is one individual, Steve Hanawa, who is Japanese and who is hired by the Japanese company, who comes to Gremlin and essentially serves as a liaison 
between the two companies helping to localize some of the Japanese games in the U.S. market. But other than that, there's there's very little interaction between the, the Japanese and Gremlin. Huh. Well, because again, remember, it's an American company. I mean, Rosen's the guy that's on top of this whole thing. And Rosen is based in America. Sega Enterprises Incorporated is based in America. So there's not, it's not like Gremlin is a subsidiary of the Japanese company and therefore is in constant contact with the Japanese because the Japanese are providing them all their product. That's the thing that you have to remember about this relationship, which is very different than the typical relationship with you have the Japanese and the American company, because as we said before, Sega is not actually a Japanese company. Yet. Well, they were before and they will be again, but during this time period, they're not. Right. So when you look at it that way, it makes a lot more sense because the Sega Gremlin people have their own development staff. I mean, they're making their own games. They make a lot of games during this period. And they may have even done some of the programming on some of the Japanese games. This is something that is just coming to light. Uh, Ethan, who we've already mentioned this episode, mentioned before, is actually in the process of interviewing Frank Fogelman. Mm -hmm. He's in his 80s now, I think. He's never given a historical interview before. I mean, this is a really big find. I say in the process because they've had a couple of sessions, but they haven't gotten through everything yet. Sega's biggest arcade hit, well, there were two of them. The first big hit that they kind of had in the Golden Age was Frogger in 1981. Everyone remembers that one. Right. Frogger is a Konami game, but Sega built it and manufactured it and, and sold it and everything. According to Fogelman, and this contradicts some other sources, so we're, we're still not sure. This is breaking news. According to Fogelman, Gremlin actually designed and programmed Frogger in America based on a Japanese idea that was given to them by David Rosen. Huh. How that factors in with Konami owning the game, and there, there's some reasons to doubt that. There's some Japanese music in, in the game, a couple of anime themes and whatnot that are used as a soundtrack in the game. It's hard to believe that the American staff would be doing that. It feels more like a Japanese game. I mean, it's kind of look and feel seems more Japanese. Its board certainly seems similar to other Konami arcade boards being used at the time. There's a, a marketing executive who says that she's the one that convinced Gremlin to do Frogger. And she talks about how she already had the ROMs for the game and gave them to, to Gremlin, to Sega, which you know, Im implies that it was programmed someplace else. So I don't know how this all works at this point. <laughs> to be determined. But even if they didn't do Frogger, they were doing a lot of their own games. They got involved in vector graphic games, which were not being done in Japan. And Japan was doing its own thing, too. Another one of their hits in this period was a racing game called Turbo, and that was fully out of Japan. So, But they're both kind of doing their own thing. And, and what holds them and links them together is David Rosen and Sega Enterprises Incorporated. That is another area that gets very confused. Nobody really understands when Sega bought Gremlin. Blockade is often listed as a Sega game mm -hmm. because it was done by Gremlin. But it was done by Gremlin before they were part of Sega. And you occasionally see all sorts of different dates thrown around for when the company was purchased. It was purchased in the fall of 1978. And, and that's, that's a fact. I mean, from annual reports, from contemporary newspaper articles... 
that we have documented evidence of this. Right. But you still see some other dates thrown around sometimes. So uh, more of the confusing mess that is Sega. Well, I mean, it has so many tendrils all over the place. It's hard to keep it all straight. Right. It can be. They have the Sega Gremlin thing. It remains Sega Gremlin until 1982. And by that time, they decide, I guess they decided they didn't really need the Gremlin name anymore and that Sega Gremlin was a mouthful. So in 1982, Sega Gremlin gets renamed Sega Electronics Incorporated. That's another subsidiary for you. Sega Electronics is the former Gremlin. Mm -hmm. And that's just a name change in 1982. It's not a new company. They move to a big new factory about the time they do the game Zaxxon, which becomes a massive hit. That's probably the biggest hit they had during the Golden Age. I don't know if Frogger or Zaxxon was bigger, but I get the sense that Zaxxon was even bigger than Frogger. So everything's going great for them. At about this time, David Rosen decides that he's ready to retire. He steps down in 82 or 83, somewhere in there, as the head of the company. And Jeff Rockless, who had previously been one of the founders of Mattel Electronics, becomes the head of the company. Rockless brings them into the consumer market as well. They had licensed their games for the home market. They licensed Turbo and Zaxxon, two of their big hits, to Coleco for the home market, and they licensed Frogger to Parker Brothers for the home market. But Rockless actually gets them into doing their own console games as well, doing them in-house. So they then have a, a console division as well in the United States. In this period of time, also, Gulf and Western is kind of in a tumultuous process. Charles Bloodhorn dies in 1982, and the successors in management of the company are kind of looking to consolidate and deconglomerize a bit. So they're starting to sell things off, mm -hmm. and they're starting to scale down, and they're starting to integrate. There are plans afoot to integrate Sega and Paramount, essentially, to make Sega a part of the Paramount umbrella. Really? Yeah, to get some synergy there. And so Michael Eisner and Barry Diller, who are running Paramount, this is before Eisner was at Disney, obviously, joined the Sega board, and Sega personnel got involved on the Paramount board, and there was this plan to really kind of integrate the two, and there was more licensing going on. Uh, they were getting a Star Trek game together, for instance, because Paramount Television owns Star Trek. Oh, yeah. They were starting to get some of the synergy stuff together. They were starting to get more involved personally in the home market, and everyone's feeling great about themselves, and then, of course, the crash happens. Yeah, it wasn't important. Yeah, so you have the arcade downturn, and you have the, the home market crash that kind of all happened in this period. During this time, Gulf and Western had bought most of the remaining outstanding stocks, so they own something like 90 or 95% of the company now. They really aren't exactly sure what to do, I think, when all of this downturn stuff happens. In Japan, they are getting involved in Laserdisc technology. Sega has one of the very first Laserdisc games. Dragon's Lair is the one that gets all the, the hype. Yeah, it's it was, the most famous one. It was the big hit. It wasn't quite first. Sega actually had one first called Astron Belt, which was a different kind of game. There are basically two ways that Laserdisc games were done. There was the Dragon's Lair approach, where you just have movie up on the screen and you occasionally have a choice to make where you press a button and you go this way or you press another button and go that way. Sort of like quick time events in some video games today. Yeah, they were essentially the first quick time events. And then you have more traditional arcade games where basically the laser disc is used to put the background up 
and then you still have sprites superimposed over the top of that, and you have kind of traditional gameplay, but the background is extra special because it's video. Mm -hmm. The Astron Belt was the latter. It was a kind of standard shooting type game, but the backgrounds were made using video, including here's some of that synergy again. They used some footage from some movies, some Paramount movies, including Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan, just for those background images rather than shooting brand new movies. We already have the footage. Might as well use it. So in 8283, it's thought that the Laserdisc is going to be the salvation of the arcade because the arcade downturn's happening. And there's a sense that something new is needed, and everyone thinks that Laserdisc will be that thing, because when Dragon's Lair first hits, it's humongous. Then, when everyone memorizes the, the pattern, and then there's no gameplay left, yeah. then it crashes. So Laserdisc does not end up being the salvation of the industry. For, for a brief period, it looked like Laserdisc was going to be the next big thing in the arcades. And so that attracted the attention of Bally. Bally didn't have any Laserdisc games in production. They wanted some Laserdisc games. Sega had Laserdisc games in production, but Gulf and Western, that's in the process of consolidating and downsizing from their conglomerating, isn't necessarily sure that they want to have Sega anymore. It's a match made in heaven, essentially. So Sega Electronics is sold in 1983 to Bally. Okay. They get the factory, they get the employees, they get the rights in North America to Sega's arcade games. Mm -hmm. So that gets them the Laserdisc games they want. And the Gremlin people. Well, but they get rid of all the people. They don't want the people. Oh. They don't want the factory. Oh, they don't, well, they don't need any of that. Okay. They have tons of people in Chicago. They have a huge factory in Chicago. They do the deal essentially solely so that they can get some Laserdisc properties. They want the IP and the technology. Mm -hmm. So they shut Sega Electronics down. They shut that factory down. For the next two years, 83-85, Bally has the exclusive rights to bring Sega games over to the United States. They don't bring that many over because this is the period of time when everything's falling apart. But Sega doesn't have an American arcade presence at this point. They still have the Japanese subsidiary, and they still have the R&D and console stuff mm -hmm. in the U.S. So they're still designing games, including arcade games, in the U.S. And they're still doing the console games themselves, but they no longer have their own factory to make arcade games in the U.S. They generate all the IP, they generate all the technology, but they have to rely on someone else in order to actually do the U.S. production and distribution. Yes, though really that's a moot point because at this point everyone's getting out of it anyway, so it's not like Sega releases much product. I'm not exactly sure when Sega Enterprises Incorporated is finally wrapped up, it's either in late 84 or early 85. And I mean, they just shut it down because there's really no value to that part of the company anymore. And Gulf and Western Paramount just wants out. Mm -hmm. Japanese stuff is a little different. That's a little more valuable because Japan is not affected nearly so badly as the United States. They do have their own downturn, as we discussed, where the government started regulating arcades more closely. And, and I mean, they have they go through their rocky period too, but it's nothing like what the United States goes through. That company still has value. And so at this point, when it's very clear that Gulf and Western Paramount don't have any interest in continuing with video games and continuing with Sega, David Rosen comes out of retirement to save the Japanese part of the company. Hmm. He gets a consortium of backers together. 
led by Isao Okawa of Computer Services Corporation. CSK is the abbreviation. CSK is one of the largest providers of computer solutions, software solutions in Japan. In Japan, during this period of time, most companies preferred to have a completely custom hardware and software solution for their own business. In the United States, in the 60s and whatnot, of course, everything was dominated by IBM. And so Mm -hmm. IBM or a company that was leasing machines from IBM would provide you IBM hardware and IBM software, and it would be somewhat custom tailored to what you needed. But, you know, it was mostly coming from that single source of IBM, or if you were buying from one of IBM's competitors, that competitor was providing everything. By the early 70s, maybe even by the 60s, there was a software industry in the United States had finally developed where software was seen as something separate from hardware. But even then, it was databases and stuff where you might do some customization on your end, but you would buy the product from the database company, and then maybe you'd have some programmers tweak it to your needs. But you know, we're we're getting very much in into the mold of of where things went with microcomputers as well, which is, you know, you buy your hardware from this guy, you buy your software from this guy, but it's it's generic stuff, and you may tailor it to your own needs. And if you're really fancy, you might have an in-house programmer or two building some custom stuff of your own. But it's it's a lo- mostly off the shelf kind of stuff, and just tweaked. very commodity, very interchangeable. Something mm-hmm. breaks, you just go to the store and buy bit. In Japan, they very much preferred custom hardware and software solutions. All the major businesses did. So you had companies like CSK that would come in and assess your needs, and they would put together a suite of stuff just for you. I mean, the hardware was hardware from the manufacturers. It's not like they were building hardware. But there was a lot of custom software design in Japan, much more so than in the United States. Mm -hmm. And so that's the kind of business that CSK was in. And it had been founded, I think, back in 1968 by Asao Okawa, and it was one of Japan's largest computer software companies. It was a big deal. And so Rosen got him interested in putting up a lot of the money to buy Sega Enterprises Limited back from Gulf and Western. And so in 1984, this group, led by Asao Okawa, purchases Sega Enterprises. For the rest of the period that Sega is in the hardware business, all the way up until it is sold to Sammy in 2004, Sega is a subsidiary of CSK. Huh. Mm-hmm. Isao Kawa becomes the chairman of Sega Enterprises Limited. Rosen stays in the United States. He doesn't want to come back to Japan at this point. He stays back in Southern California and kind of takes responsibility for overseeing what's going on in the United States. To run the Japanese company, they tap a fellow named Hayao Nakayama, who remains the CEO of Sega all the way until 1998. I mean, he's with them through this entire glory period. Nakayama had started his own distributor in Japan, Esco Trading Company, that had been very successful. And in 1979, Sega purchased Esco, basically as much as anything, to get Nakayama's expertise. Hmm. So he was an executive vice president in Sega Japan and was one of the primary people running things in in the Japanese office in Sega Enterprises Limited. And so then after this buyout, he became the CEO of the entire company. Sega operated largely independently, as far as I can tell, under Nakayama, but it was technically a subsidiary of another company. CSK actually owned Sega Enterprises. And that's 1984. So that's the point in 1984 
where it becomes a Japanese company. Again. Again. After it pretty much sold off. Um, right. And Sega Enterprises Incorporated lasts a little longer. Like I said, late 1984, early 85 is when they shut it down. So for a very brief period of time, there is Sega Enterprises Incorporated and Sega Enterprises Limited, two different Segas that are both completely separate from each other. So probably it just was a transition handoff of power thing where they're shutting down everything in the incorporated side and mm-hmm. transferring yeah, everything over to the limited side. Well, and- they weren't transferring things over to the limited side. I mean, that was, that was the Japanese subsidiaries. So, I mean, all the stuff that was going on in Japan, like we talked about, was mm-hmm. pretty divorced from what was going on in the United States. So, well, I imagine from an administrative, whatever, paper. Oh, well, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure there's some things. stuff that had to be done. Yeah, no, I'm sure. That's true. 1984 is when we get this Sega Enterprises Limited, independent again, though mm-hmm. a subsidiary of a, another company. Sega, from this point, is fully Japanese. I mean, Nakayama, who's in charge, is Japanese, and the chairman, Okawa, is Japanese, and all the developers and designers and whatnot at this point are, are Japanese. That is when Sega really actually becomes a Japanese company. And Rosen's still there, but he's not doing stuff in Japan. He becomes the, the chairman... When they come back to America and found new subsidiaries, he becomes chairman of the board of those subsidiaries mm-hmm. and kind of keeps an eye on things, but he's not running the day-to-day. He maybe checks in once a week. All of their subsidiaries are up in Northern California. He's down in Los Angeles. He just kind of keeps an eye on things, more or less. Yeah. Supervisory role. Sort of like those people who stand around and supervise while other people are doing the work. Yeah, but he's not even supervising too closely. Like I said, he'd maybe check in once a week just to to see what was going on, that kind of thing. The crash happens, obviously, and everything gets kind of wiped out. Sagan in the United States is gone. The Bally deal, Bally has the rights to all the stuff in North America, Sega Arcade stuff in North America, for a period of two years. In 1985, they, they don't have that exclusivity anymore. That expires. So in 1985, Sega comes back to the United States. They hire Gene Lipkin, who had been the president of Atari Coin-Op, and before that, the VP of Sales and Marketing at Atari, who is a very, very well-respected executive in the Coin-Op industry, really knows Coin-Op well. He's a big part of the reason why Atari was successful in the late 70s. Mm -hmm. They hire Gene Lipkin to be president of a new arcade subsidiary, Sega Enterprises USA. So now we have Sega Enterprises Limited, Sega Enterprises USA. Not and Sega Enterprises or Sega of America or anything. It's no, this Sega? isn't. Yeah, this is not Sega of America. Right. Two different companies. Even though it seems the same. Well, this is just arcades. Right. So... Gene Lipkin uh, had been serving as a consultant, kind of. He technically had the president's title, but was basically serving as a consultant for a company called Exidy that had been active in the 70s and 80s in arcade video games, but was really hurting because of the crash. They were in bankruptcy. They survived the bankruptcy, but at this point, they're in bankruptcy. And at first, it looks like Sega is actually going to purchase Exidy. Gene Lipkin tries to arrange for Sega to purchase Exidy to kind of become their American branch. That falls through for whatever reason, so Exidy does not become part of Sega, but Gene Lipkin takes over the company. He does bring in uh, a couple of other people. There is a person from Exidy that eventually comes to work for the company, uh, though Lipkin didn't hire him. Tom Pettit, his successor, did. 
They've got this arcade company now, and they are perfectly poised because 85 is when the arcade is starting to come back. And it turns out that Sega has the hottest new idea in arcade games because they have a very brilliant designer in Japan named Yu Suzuki who wanted to outdo Namco's driving games because Namco's the king of driving games at this point with pole position, as we talked about, Mm -hmm. and comes up with this idea of a motorcycle driving game where you are actually on a motorcycle on the cabinet. You know, there's, you're on a controller shaped like a motorcycle that you move left and right in order to move the motorcycle left and right, and that's Hang On. Hang On becomes a massive hit in Japan and also in the United States and Europe. Inaugurates a new product category that the Japanese call the, the Taiken type game. It's kind of full body, it kind of embodies the idea of a full body experience. Mm-hmm. It's these games, the big games with the large cabinets that you sit in, cabinets that may move, force feedback, all of these realistic elements. And Sega becomes kind of the master of those, and Yu Suzuki becomes kind of the master of those. Hang on, followed by Outrun, followed by Afterburner and Space Harrier, just these really popular games. And that makes Sega one of the big names in the arcades. And so Sega Enterprises USA is perfectly primed to to take advantage of that. They're right there at the start with Hang On. After that comes successful, they come back to the United States as well for their console business. Mm Mm-hmm. When the Japanese arcade was starting to feel a little soft in kind of the 1982-83 period because nothing had come along that was nearly as successful as Pac-Man, you had a situation where all of the Japanese arcade companies were looking to diversify into other areas. It's no coincidence that Nintendo comes up with a home system during this period of time. Konami starts putting their games on Japanese computers during this time, and Sega decides that they should get into the home market because they could not rely on the arcade continuing to be successful enough for the business to continue to grow. Mm -hmm. This is obviously still during the period of time where they're owned by Paramount because we're going back in time to 1982-1983 time period now. At this period of time, it really does look like the home computer is going to be the the hot new thing. You know, I have my theory about how that played out in the United States, but in Japan, it really did play out this way. I mean, you don't have to theorize about that. During this period of time, there were a lot of computer console hybrids coming out, culminating then in the MSX standard, which was not a console hybrid, but it was a low-cost computer that was meant as much for playing games as anything else. <laughs> And so it really looked like computers were going to be the future. And so Sega decides to create its own kind of computer console hybrid system called the the SC3000. Meanwhile, Nintendo is taking the opposite track. Nintendo is the one company that, rather than going down this home computer rabbit hole, decides that they're going to do a pure console. Hiroshi Amuchi, the president of the company, tasks one of his engineers, Uemura, to create as cheap a high-performance console as he possibly can. He wants to undercut all the competition while having a higher-quality product. Mm -hmm. Because the home computer thing was becoming so big at that time, when they were designing it, they were looking into, do we want to put in a keyboard? Do we want to put in a disk drive? Do we want to put in a modem? Do we want to do this? Do we want to do that? Yamuchi was basically like, No. 
this needs to be as cheap as possible, and it is going to be a game machine. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really one of the reasons why Nintendo did so well here is because a lot of their competition, such as it was, the home console market wasn't very big at this point in Japan, but much of their competition, such as it was, was putting more computer functionality in, which raised the price of things. Nintendo just laser-focused in on games because Yamauchi was the only guy who could see that that, that was the future. Mm-hmm. Dedicated video game consoles, not computers. And he was right about that. So they create a console rather than a, a computer. And so Sega decides that they should do that too, essentially. And so they take their SC3000 computer and they modify it into a console. They get rid of the keyboard and some of the other advanced components, but it's basically the same architecture on the inside. And they release that as the SG1000. Hmm. This is another point of confusion. People in, in the United States assume, just because they know Sega is a console company, they assume that the SG1000 came first and that the computer was an upgrade of the console. But it was actually a computer first, console second. That's correct. And that, that came to light recently because there's the fantastic Japanese article translation site, Shmuplations, and he translated an interview with Hideki Sato, who is one of the big hardware guys at Sega that kind of gave an overview of their hardware history. And in that interview, Sato says that the computer came first. So it's just there weren't any English sources mm-hmm. that spoke to the birth of the system. And so people just kind of assumed that the more primitive console came before the computer. It would make sense from a layman's mm-hmm. and not knowing any better. Right. But the other way does make sense, too, when you consider that so many other companies, Takara and Tomy, which are two big uh, Japanese toy companies, were both creating computer console hybrids during this period. And then you had the MSX standard coming about, which was a computer, but a low-cost computer that had a, a big game-playing component to it, comparable in that sense to the Commodore 64, though the, the systems aren't comparable technologically, but just... Right, but in concept. Yeah. So it makes sense in that context that the computer would come first. So they release the console, and that's what gets them into the console business. And the SG-1000 doesn't do very well. Nintendo just takes over the market. Yeah. And we talked before about that. Uh, they do an upgrade of it called the SG-2000, and then they do uh, an upgrade called the Mark III, which is what in the United States becomes the master system. And by the time they're doing the Mark III, the U.S. market is coming back. Nintendo's had their test market in New York in 85, and it looks like video games are going to come back in the United States. So Sega decides that they're going to bring their Mark III to the U.S. And so in March 1986... They establish Sega of America. Okay. Sega Enterprises USA still exists. They have separate consumer and coin-op American divisions. And, and this remains the same all, all through this stuff. So Sega Enterprises USA is the arcade subsidiary. Sega of America is strictly the console subsidiary. And this is Sega of America version 2.0. Exactly, because there had previously been a Sega of America back in the 70s. And like I said, I don't know exactly how that wound down, how it got smooshed into something else. But, I mean, that's long gone. This is a new company, Sega So the name's available. It's just, and it's no longer an American company. It is a Japanese subsidiary. American subsidiary of a Japanese company. Right. Yes. Yes. To head Sega of America, 
they first offer it to the person in charge of the arcade division. Gene Lipkin's left at this point. He goes through some really serious personal issues at this point and steps down. His kind of number two man, Tom Pettit, takes over, and Tom Pettit remains in charge for uh, about a decade or so. He remains at Sega Enterprises USA a long time. They offer the home console division to Tom Pettit first because he's already there. Uh, he decides he's happy at the arcade division, but he had briefly worked at Nintendo in their arcade division. And so he recommended Bruce Lowry over at Nintendo, who was uh, head of sales. Bruce Lowry had just gotten done introducing the Famicom in the New York market for that test market. He mm -hmm. was as, as their head of sales. And so they go after him really hard because Tom Pettit recommends him. Plus, he's, he's just done this. He knows how to launch a console in the United, a Japanese console in the United States. Bruce is very happy at Nintendo. He, he doesn't necessarily want to leave, but they essentially make him an offer he can't refuse. He kind of wanted to be back in California, and they gave him the opportunity to be back in California, and they, he gave them a pretty uh, semi-outrageous salary demand, and they agreed to it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Bruce decides to move down to, to San Francisco and establish Sega of America. And while there was a Sega of America before, while that name did exist before, this time around, it was called that specifically because Nintendo had Nintendo of America. Mm -hmm. Bruce Lowry was coming from there. Bruce was the one given the responsibility to name the company. He liked the way Nintendo of America sounded, so he named Sega his company of Sega of America. That's, that's exactly how that happened. So it's initially founded in, the, in San Jose in, the, in kind of the back room of the coin-op subsidiary, but they eventually get their own uh, facilities in San Francisco then. They're responsible for bringing the master system to the U.S. And it's interesting. I've, I've interviewed Bruce Lowry. He came from Nintendo, and he went back to Nintendo. When he was done with this, he went and helped establish Nintendo's, uh, some of Nintendo's European operations. Nintendo was very much a family. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of personal loyalty to the management at Nintendo, and a lot of loyalty from the management, from uh, Minoru Arakawa, to his employees. It was a very tight-knit group. Lowry says that when, when he left, what Arakawa told him is, you know, just don't let me down. Don't, don't disappoint me. You know, and he didn't mean that in the sense of, you know, don't do something that's going to hurt Nintendo. I mean, he understands that there's, but the idea was run this company well and run this company in a way that would make me proud of you is, is, I, mm -hmm. is what is the sense I get from that. In some ways, it may be that Lowry was almost too close to Nintendo because, of course, the console war that took place in the 16-bit era is known for a lot of back-and-forth price-cutting and competitive advertising and all of this cutthroat business practice. Perfectly acceptable business practice. There's nothing wrong with it. But it's just it has an edge to it. Mm -hmm. Bruce Lowry didn't want to do that at Sega of America. He didn't want to do a price war. He didn't want to get involved in that. He didn't want to come directly at Nintendo. He just wanted to focus on making their product the best product it could be and presenting it as the best product it could be and taking that approach, which is a very Nintendo approach. I mean, that's often what Nintendo did in its own marketing. Maybe he wasn't as competitive against Nintendo as he should have been. I don't know. Maybe not. So, you know, they never cut the price of the Master System. They did release a base system that came with, that didn't come with a pack-in game and, and whatnot, and they, they sold that for a cheaper price. So in that sense, they released a product that was cheaper than the NES, but they didn't do it by cutting the price. They did it by offering less. Yeah. 
what they call the base system because they had the master system and this is the base system. So it's a very different kind of competition between Sega and Nintendo in this period. And of course, Nintendo blows everybody out of the water. But uh, the Master System, the name, they chose the name in the United States, he and his marketing guy, Bob Harris. And then when they went to Japan and had to get final approval on it, they were meeting with Nakayama and Okawa, the chairman. And Okawa asked them through an interpreter, he doesn't speak English, why are you calling it the Master System? So they had to think up something really fast on the spot. And the marketing guy, Bob Harris, says, well, in karate, to become the master, you have to dominate all the others, Mm. all your competition. And so just like the karate master, the master system will dominate its competition. I see. And Okawa was like, word. That's not really why they named it the Master System. They just they just like the name or whatever, but that's the justification they gave mm-hmm. to get it approved. I see. So they launched the Master System. It doesn't do great. I mean, it doesn't do terrible, but compared to Nintendo, it's not doing anything at all, obviously. It ends up actually being taken away from Sega of America. When Nintendo first came into the North American market, they partnered with Worlds of Wonder, another toy company in order to expand the reach of their product because there was a lot of skepticism amongst toy buyers about video games and having Worlds of Wonder backing them open doors. Mm -hmm. Sega in Japan saw this and presumably thought that this seemed like uh, a pretty good kind of strategy. It just so happened that there was a toy company that was interested in doing this with them, Uh, Tonka, Mm -hmm. toy truck company is going through a period here where it is trying to kind of expand aggressively in the toy business. They have a new president named Pat Feely, who came over from Mattel. And he is really trying to grow Tonka into something more than just a truck company. It's, there's a lot of consolidation going on in the toy industry during this period, and being a one-trick pony like that just isn't going to work anymore in the toy industry of the mid-1980s. Mm-hmm. So Tonk is known for its trucks, but needs to be known for some other things. And they almost got Transformers. Feely had a deal in place, is my understanding, to get the, the molds for the Transformers. Because the, the Transformers, there was no such toy as the Transformers. There were two toy lines in Japan of transforming robots that Hasbro ended up buying the American rights to. And then they turned those into the Transformers. That's kind of why the Autobots and Decepticons are so very different is because Mm. the Autobots were one toy line. They weren't called Autobots, but the Autobots were one toy line and the Decepticons were the other toy line. (laughs) And that's why the very early Transformers, the Autobots and Decepticons are so different from each other. Mm -hmm. But my understanding is Feely had a deal in place first and Stephen Shank, the the chairman and CEO, his boss, who was more conservative, uh, shot that one down. So they missed out on Transformers. They they got second prize, which was the GoBots. Hmm. So they went and got the B-list Japanese transforming toy line. And GoBots are very, very lame compared to Transformers. I don't know if any of our readers, our listeners out there will remember GoBots, but... I remember them. Very lame compared to Transformers. Hmm. And then they had another toy line that they got into called Pound Puppies. I don't know if you remember Pound Puppies. Oh, yes, I remember that. That's another thing that Tonka got into. And those were a hit for a couple of years. But, of course, you know, the 
saying in the toy business is no toy has a third Christmas. Yeah. By 1987, they're looking for something else because GoBots and Pound Puppies aren't necessarily doing so well for them anymore. And at this point, it's very clear video games are coming back. At, at this point, Nintendo has established themselves well enough that uh, video games are coming back. So Pat Feely gets the idea that maybe we can get into the video game business through Sega. Mm-hmm. Because Sega is very small. Sega's not moving a lot of product. And Sega doesn't necessarily understand the American market well. I mean, I think Bruce Lowry understood the market well. But Sega of Japan right. doesn't necessarily understand the market very well. So there seems to be an opportunity here. So when he's over in Japan for their toy fair, Pat Feely meets with Nakayama directly and offers to essentially distribute the Master System in the U.S. Bruce Lowry, I mean, when I talked to him, Bruce Lowry wasn't very happy by all this. Bruce Lowry feels that by that time, by 1987, he had gotten the system distribution in pretty much all the the major U.S. retailers. I mean, they weren't doing the volume that Nintendo was doing, but he felt that they had another, a presence. Yeah, he didn't feel that they needed another company like Atonka to give them more gravitas or to give them more legitimacy because he felt that they'd already done that. Obviously, he's close to the situation. So, you know, maybe an outside observer would think something different. For whatever reason, Japan does decide to go with this. And so they end up with a, a basically a 50-50 deal. They split 50-50 after their own expenses. They split the profits 50-50 after their own expenses. Mm-hmm. And Sega is handling product development and manufacturing and all of that. Tonka is going to do all of the sales, marketing, and distribution in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So at that point, Sega of America essentially becomes irrelevant. It continues to exist. They had a warehouse uh, that they had bought to warehouse uh, systems, and equipment still came through those warehouses. And they were doing some of the customer service stuff and whatnot as well. So they, they had a small part to play in the business. But they were no longer a sales and marketing organization, so they basically became irrelevant. Glorified logistics. Right, and Bruce Lowry left the company at that point uh, because he wasn't interested in that. He went back to Nintendo. And Sega of America essentially went dormant. I mean, like I said, they were doing some warehousing and some other stuff. And so Tonka is the company that really does the master system for most of its run. A guy named Steve Morris is placed in charge of, of the business. Yeah, they... They do all the marketing, they do the sales, they decide what games they're going to bring over and localize in the West and and all of that kind of thing. You know, that deal doesn't really do anyone any favors. I mean, it's not like the Master System starts doing any worse, but it doesn't start doing any better either. You know, they don't have the hot titles because they're all exclusive to Nintendo. Mm -hmm. Then the chip shortage, I think we've talked about before, happens in 1988, and so they have problems even getting their games that they do have to market in decent quantities because there's a chip shortage and they're already not doing great and that doesn't help really. Pat Feely, because he's continuing to clash with Stephen Shank, uh, his boss, leaves the company. And Pat Feely is the guy that was really the champion of doing the video game thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they lose their big champion in upper management. Shank makes the absolutely ruinous decision to buy Kenner Parker Brothers. Really? Well, again, this is a period where it's a dog-eat-dog world and the toy companies are consolidating. And so it, it, I think there's a mentality that if you're not a buyer, you're, if, you're not an inqu- if you're not an acquirer, 
you're going to be acquired. So they buy Kenner Parker for over $500 million. They get in a bidding, a bidding war with another company called New World Entertainment, and they end up paying way more than they can really afford and way more than the Kenner Parker properties are really worth. Mm-hmm. And this begins the downward spiral of the company. Eventually Hasbro buys the whole thing. That's the end of the story a few years later. But basically they are financially in a really bad place right now. So they can't really spend the necessary resources to expand that Sega console business because they are hurting financially. Mm-hmm. So nobody's happy. Tonka's not really happy anymore. Sega's not really happy anymore. So at the end of the decade, they negotiate a parting of the ways. I want a divorce. Pretty much. It's amicable, amicable in the sense that it's mutual. Uh, a lot of sources indicate, seem to indicate that Sega was unhappy and Sega just cut them off. And it's like, well, no, it was, it was a negotiation. It, it wasn't quite like that. I think both parties were kind of happy to see the backs of each other by that point. And so when it came time for the Genesis, they started staffing up Sega of America again. And so that's, you know, Sega of America then becomes the company that markets the Genesis and the Saturn and the Dreamcast and mm-hmm. all of that. Sega of America exists again. But for this period in here, you know, between 87 and 89. The Master System era. Yeah. Sega of America just basically isn't anything. That's really it. So to, to kind of recap this kind of crazy period that we just went through, Sega Enterprises is formed in 1965 by the merger of two companies. In 1969, because they feel they cannot go public in Japan, they agree to be acquired by Gulf and Western mm-hmm. and become a subsidiary. In 1974, in order to affect a, uh, becoming a public company in the United States, a completely unrelated company called the Polly Bergen Company, owned by Gulf and Western, is renamed Sega Enterprises Incorporated, and Sega Enterprises Limited becomes its subsidiary, and this is now a publicly traded company. In 1975, they establish an American actual subsidiary, an operating subsidiary, Sega of America. And so that becomes Sega Enterprises on top and these two companies below them. 1978, they purchase Gremlin, which basically takes over as the North American subsidiary under the Sega Gremlin name, which is renamed to Sega Electronics Incorporated in 1982. 1983, Gulf and Western decides to get out of the arcade manufacturing business and sell Sega Electronics to Bally. In 1984, they decide to get out of Japan and sell Sega Enterprises Limited to CSK Corporation. And then in late 84 or 1985, they end Sega Enterprises Incorporated, and that whole Gulf and Western thing is done. Sega Enterprises Limited returns to the North American market in 1985 through Sega Enterprises USA, an arcade subsidiary. When they decide that they're going to go into the United States in the console business, they establish Sega of America in March 1986. Sega of America continually operates during the entire period, but goes essentially dormant for a period of several years while Tonka handles the master system. And then starting in 1989, 1990, they start staffing Sega of America back up, and that once again becomes their primary console subsidiary. This is the situation that continues all the way until 2004, when Sammy Corporation, which is largely a pachinko company, purchases 
Sega Enterprises Limited and puts both Sega Enterprises Limited and Sammy Corporation under the holding company Sega Sammy, which is the company that that continues to exist today. And there's been some other changes to holding companies underneath it in in later years, but that's really not important. This is this is the kind saga of, of Sega. Exactly. So there you have it. Alrighty. That's pretty crazy. It seems like all of these companies they go through so many holding name changes, subsidiaries, subsidiaries. Business is hard, man. Yeah. <laughs> and and yeah, and a lot of people get confused. So hopefully that was not too convoluted and it at least gives our listeners some idea of what Sega was when during the 1970s, 1980s, and 1990s. Well, I certainly think the summary you gave there was pretty succinct. Mm-hmm. Now comes the big question. What are we going to talk about next time? Well, I think it might be nice for another good origin story. And there's been a lot of very interesting information that's come out kind of in the last year or two on Nutting Associates and computer space and kind of the whole birth of this arcade video game industry. And we've done a few origin stories. We've talked about uh, the Magnavox Odyssey. We've talked about Galaxy Game, kind of these early things bubbling up in, in 1971-72. And I think it's about time we added Computer Space to that list. All right. So Computer Space and Nutting Associates. Next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at tcwpodcast.podbean.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com Email us at tcwpodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at tcwpodcast. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com forward slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. 